You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. We're continuing in our series on the book of Ephesians, looking at who we are to be as God's church, who we are to be as God's church. And in the passage we're looking at today, we're seeing that Paul is shifting from describing who we are to how we live that out in everyday life. Who we are now in Christ, and this is what it looks like to live it out. And Paul wants to express to us, and he, in this passage, vividly prays that who we are gets so into our bones that it leaks out in our behavior. That what is in your bones eventually will leak out in your behavior. We know this, don't we? Because we've all been raised with a certain identity which leaks out in who we are. It could be that your family had such a strong culture that when someone says, why do you act that way? It's like, well, I'm a Jones. I'm a Smith. I'm a something else. It's like, this is who I am. Or it could be the culture of the state that you're from. I realize coming to America that certain states have different cultures and people go, oh man, you're so from Texas. Or you're so from the South. Or in LA, you can spot, can't you really spot a New Yorker a mile off in, in Los Angeles? It's like, man, you're so, chill out, dude. You know, it's just, you can tell that this identity is in them so much that it leaks out in their behavior. Lizzie and I are, my wife and I are not from America, but we are now Americans, which is very exciting. So about six years ago, we became citizens. And I'm from England, my wife is Australian. And my eldest daughter was born in Switzerland, my second daughter born in London, and my third son was born in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, but I remember when we went to the citizenship ceremony downtown, the Staples Center, that conference center down there, and we were welcomed into being citizens. We were in a room full of about a thousand others. And we were stepping into a new identity. They showed a film of what it looks like now to be an American. Everyone around us from all over the world were like realizing that we are stepping out of an identity into a new one. We were congratulated, we were applauded. We were celebrating that we are now stepping into this new identity of being an American. And yet when we walked out of the room, we had this identity in our heads, but it would take a while for it to get to our bones that we started to behave like Americans. And we've been here now for about 15 years in America. And you'll be pleased to know that America's getting into our bones a bit. <laughs> that we're now actually acting like Americans. It's changing our behavior because what gets into your bones eventually bleeds out into your behavior. So we are living in this joyous identity as Americans. The land of opportunity and freedom. I'm discovering, man, I've got so much more confidence now as an American compared to being British. <laughs> I can do anything. This is unbelievable. I'm loving the equality. I come from downstairs, upstairs world. This class system in England and over here, there is no class system. 
is we all start out in a world where actually your heritage and your background, we want that not to be an impediment into anything that you have in the future. I've got all these funny little traits of being American now, just kind of my word. I can't live without AC wherever I go. It's just like, oh, where's the aircon? I really, 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 this is so American. My friends back in England go, you're so American. I really, really, really want to buy and own and drive an F-150 truck. It's like, what is going on? Every time I have a salad, I want to customize my salad and just like pick and choose what I want. And I've actually learned over the years and now I train other expats how to high five and fist bump. It's, America, it's amazing, you realize that people just don't know how to do that. If you watch an English person trying to high five, it's just like messy. You actually have to learn, no, don't move your wrist, don't move your elbow, it's not this, it's, like, it's just that, it's that, it's rebounds. You know, and you see an Englishman try and fist pump, right? It's like they're hitting someone. It's like, no, 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 you have to rebound, bright, you know. It's what, I mean, it's in my bones. And I'm starting to live it out. And this is really the essence of what Paul is saying, what it means to be a Christian. He says, becoming a Christian is stepping into a new identity. And eventually, when it, what has happened to you when it finally goes from just a ceremony and a piece of paper, when it finally gets into your bones, you start to live it out. You start to become like the people of God. And many of us in our years have been so hurt by the church or disillusioned with the church because how we behave is nothing like who we are. And Paul is saying that can easily happen because until it's in your bones, you won't live it out. It has to go from here to here. And so Paul in his letter spends three chapters describing what it means to be now a child of God, to be in the family of God, to be completely cleansed of your old identity, to be born again, to be forgiven, to be sanctified, to be now in Christ. And he's about to transition to therefore live it out. Therefore, you need to actually start behaving like who you are, but there's this really important passage which we're about to read today, which is the key to it all. What we're gonna see is Paul says, hey man, for two and a half chapters, I've told you who you are. I've told you what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom, but that's not gonna change how you live until this happens. He says, until this gets into your bones, until the Holy Spirit plunges you into this. It won't make a blind bit of difference. And what we're going to see is many, sadly many, live in the first two and a half chapters of, we check the boxes, yep, I'm forgiven, yep, I'm cleansed, yep, I'm a child of God, but it makes no difference to how we live because we haven't had this infect our bones. What does it mean have all of this so get into our bones that we live out. We can't help but live out who we are as children of God. So let's open our Bibles in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, one of the most important passages in all of God's scripture. And I want you to pick up Paul's passion behind this, for everything about who you are and what God wants for you and your future in him comes down to this. 
Verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, in your bones, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may then be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul for two and a half chapters says this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. But before he says, therefore, this is, this is what it means to be part of God's family, he says, but I, I gotta stop, I gotta kneel. He's in prison and he's kneeling. Kneeling is not a common posture in the first century of prayer. It was normally standing and raising your hands. But he's so dependent and utterly desperate, he kneels and says, God, but you gotta do something. You gotta, you gotta get this head knowledge. You gotta get this information out of just their heads and you gotta plunge it into their hearts. Paul knows that it's only when this is in your bones that you start to change your behavior. So we start to live into the reality of who he is in your life. That's why later on, when he's talking about this is how we live as God's children, he says, follow God's example. In chapter five, verse one, he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. He says, you're not gonna really live into all that God has for you. You're not gonna be obedient and faithful to him. You're not gonna endure the storms or whatever come your life until you realize how dearly loved you are as his children. He says, once that's in your bones, you can't help but run after him with everything you have. To align your life to him, to, to sacrifice things that don't accord to his will and to... to to stop compromising where it doesn't actually bring him glory until you actually start to see and feel in your bones, I'm a dearly loved child of God. Not until then. Do you follow him wherever he may lead? That's why back in verse 17, he says, I pray that you will be rooted and established in his love. At the core of what it means to be in the family of God as a follower of Jesus is this simply this, I pray kneel before the Father that you, that you may know the love of God in your life. That Christianity is not a philosophy, it's not a worldview, it's a relationship that you brought back to a relationship with your heavenly Father. And he says, I pray that what gets into your bones is the love that he has for you that you may be rooted and established. Rooted is the Greek word ritsu, which is an agricultural metaphor, talking about a plant that puts its roots in something, and out of that soil, it sucks up all the nutrients that it needs to live. That its health and its vibrancy and its life comes from something else. And he says, you need, I pray that you're, you may be rooted in his love for you. That your motivations, that your goals, your dreams, your desires with your future is, is rooted not in anything other than 
his extravagant love for you. He then moves on and says, I pray that you may be established in love. He's switching metaphors from an agricultural to an architectural, where to establish was to build the foundation of a building. He said, look, your life, whatever you're building in your life, whatever you're trying to achieve in your life, your career, your, your marriage, your finances, your wealth, your, your agenda, your legacy, I pray that it's built on this firm foundation of being rooted and established in his love for you. Because when that becomes what you're building your life on, of how you're loved, how you're dearly prized, how he rescued you and saved you, that's when you build a house that's worth building. Paul kneels before the Father. Lord, plunge them into your love. Plunge them into the love that will become the nutrients by which they live, that will become the foundation for what they build in their lives. Everything depends on what you're rooted in and what you're established upon. It's worth saying at this point that we need to redefine the word love here because when we read love, we can import into this word what we understand culture today in Los Angeles defines as love. But that's not at all the God kind of love. You know, love has been emptied of its meaning, right? So we love everything. We love sports. We love free refills, we love cheesecake, we love, we love, people have like millions of followers and they're declaring, I love all my followers. It's like, you don't know any of them. And you love them. Love has become this shallow feeling of really liking something or even tolerating something or having a strong affection for something. And out of that, therefore, we assume that love and we've defined love to be something temporary because you can fall in love and fall out of love. It's performance-based, that I'm loved based on my performance, and therefore if I don't perform, someone will take away their love. It's centered on self. I love you, I love this for what it does for me. This is why I love. And so if we take this definition of love, the LA kind of love, and then God says, I want you to be based on how much I love you, we can easily put that onto God and say, well, God loves me with this kind of temporal, performative, self-centered love. I gotta keep on performing, I gotta keep on being a good Christian, I gotta, I gotta make sure I don't do anything that is going to be breaking of that. He must really like me for some reason. But of course, this is nothing like the love that God wants to pour into our hearts. Love defined by Jesus, by Paul, and the whole of the Bible is very different to the LA kind of love. If you grew up in church, you'll have heard the word agape, which is the Greek word for the specific type of love that God has for us that is become up to become our foundation. And the Bible describes this love simply this way. God's love to us is the love of Jesus. God's love to us is demonstrated by how Jesus loved us. That's why in this passage, Paul says, I want you to be rooted and established in love. And then he quickly goes on and says, to know and grasp the love of Christ. Because 
we have to realize that we ought to be rooted in and established in this other kind of love, the love of Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when you were at your worst, he loved you at his most. What kind of love is that? Imagine being in a relationship where you don't have to hide anything anymore. You don't have to suppress anymore. You don't have to cover up anymore because you think, oh man, if they only knew that about me, then I wouldn't be loved. Imagine in friendships, you go, oh man, I've got to put, be on my best behavior. I've got to be witty. I've got to be funny. I've got to be clever because if they knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. Imagine actually not having to manage your veneer and your circumstances because there is a love who knows you at your worst and then extravagantly loves you nevertheless. This is the love of God. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Imagine a love that gives no regard to what we get out of this relationship, but simply what is good for you. That Jesus laid down his life for you. That he values you so much, he prizes you so much. That God, the creator of the universe, came, incarnated himself, that he would become flesh, that he would die for you. This is another type of love. 1 John 4 says, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Imagine a love that actually doesn't care what you think about me. I'm going to love you anyway. That even though you don't love me, I'm going to look down on the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Imagine a love that says to your enemy, I love you so much that even though you are my enemy, I will die for you and I will take justice so you don't have to. It's the ultimate self-sacrificial, other-centered, committed, permanent love that we have never tasted except for the love of Jesus Christ. This is the type of love that God wants to root our life on build our life upon, plunge us into. Because when this love is in your heart, you're never the same. When it's in your bones, all of your behavior starts to change. Lizzie and I have three kids and there was one common pattern with all of our kids when they were younger in that they were all uh, misbehaving. (laughs) Have you ever had that? (laughs) They were all naughty. And at times, uh, at times, I would go, I've got to discipline. You know, I've got to show them the rules, right? And there's appropriate times for that. But more often than not, my wife would stop me and go, oh, whoa, 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 yeah, hang on a minute. I don't think they're misbehaving. I actually just think there's a different problem. I actually think their love tank is empty. I go, what? He goes, they're not being naughty. They're just empty. Their love tank is empty. 
And she'd probably rightly say, Gail, you've been, you've been away. You've been working a lot. It's been really busy around the house. And we haven't been able to actually be with the kids much. We actually haven't had quality time with the kids much. It's like their love tank is empty and therefore they're acting out. The solution is not discipline. The solution is to fill up their tanks with love. See, wives know everything, don't they? And I remember, therefore, okay, you know what? You're right, I've been working too much. Uh, We sit down, spend quality time together, and all of a sudden you see as their love tank grows, they become these different kids. They start to laugh, they start to be at peace, they start not to act out anymore. It's because their love tank is full. And Paul is saying, if we want to be the people of God, if we want to represent him in the world, if we want to actually live into all that he has for us, if we want to be a people that truly reflect Jesus, then basically we need our love tanks being filled. And if our love tanks aren't full, we will act out. You know what it's like to act out? I do anyway. I start to compare myself to others. I start to realize that I'm insecure until I perform for people to like me. I start to get a bit depressed because I don't think I'm significant anymore. You know, I, I kind of try to manage my circumstances that, you know, I do it in a way that people like me. All of these things are just my behavioral outbursts or having an empty love tank. And Paul, if I could summarize Paul's passage here, he says, I kneel before the Father that your love tank may be full. See, when your love tank is full, (laughs) with God's type of love, oh my word, everything changes. People hurt you, you know what? You start to go, you know, I don't need revenge because I'm so filled with the humility that comes from I was a sinner, but yet he died for me. I can forgive you. You start to, people, you know, do say horrible things or uh, thwart you or backstab you or gossip or ruin, try and like spread rumors about you and you kind of go, oh my word, yeah, I'm gonna, I believe in justice, but you know what, I empathize with you because you know what, <laughs> I'm a deep sinner too and yet I'm loved and I've been forgiven and therefore I'm gonna extend that hospitality and that forgiveness to you. In your marriage, which Paul comes on later, he says, once you know this type of love, everything in your relationships change because you know what, it's your husband, can I be neglecting you? Your husband can kind of not be building you up. Your husband can be absent. Your husband can be a jerk like I can. And if your only tank to love him back is your feelings of how well you're loved by your husband, you'll soon run dry. And Paul says, as a Christian, when your love tank is filled up by God, you have extra resources to give to your spouse when they're not giving anything to you. To commit to your spouse when the feelings have dried up. To seek their holiness and their happiness, even though they're being selfish, even though they're being self-centered. You see, This love, when your love tank is filled, you become a different type of person. It's so interesting, Paul's letters in the second half of Paul's letters always do this, do that, do this. And we often look at Paul's letters and go, man, you're so legalistic, you're so harsh. 
I love the first three chapters of Paul, not the other three chapters of Paul. Because we misunderstand what Paul is doing. He's assuming that at the end of chapter two, we get to the place where we kneel before the Father and we are plunged into the love of God in such a way that we go, okay, what do I do with this love? What do I do? How do I work this extravagant love and forgiveness that I've received from God? How do I, how, how, how do I work this in my relationships? How do I outwork this in my vocation? How do I work this in my sex life? How do I work this with my mouth? He's saying, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. He's assuming that we're overflowing with the love of God and we're just looking at ways to bless the world with what we've been blessed with. But it all comes back to being filled, plunged into the love of God. The sad reality is many of us have lived in the first two and a half chapters all of our lives. We've heard sermons, We've done Bible studies, we've memorized scripture on who we are in Christ, but it's never got into our bones. How does it get into our bones? Paul says in this passage, he says, I pray that you may have power. And a couple of verses before, he says, I pray that you may have the spirit, the the power from the Holy Spirit. It's when he comes in, he will give the ability to grasp how much you're loved, to understand how much you're loved. In other words, you can't be plunged into the love of God in your own strength. You need God to do it. And when you invite the Holy Spirit to plunge you, he says, two things are gonna happen. You're gonna be, you're gonna grasp and you're going to know. And both those words are very different. Grasp is to be ambushed. In the Greek there, it's katalambane, which means to, to have something that was like, not very obvious, but suddenly in the background, it suddenly ambushes you. He says you'll be walking along the street or you'll be in a church worship time or you'll be having your devotions in the morning or you'll be hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains and you'll be meditating on just the love of God and all of a sudden, it will ambush you. And the Holy Spirit will make it not just for everyone, but the Holy Spirit will make that love for you. I remember this happening time and time again in my life. I remember the first time it happened, it was, I'd grown up in church and I'd heard the words, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And Christ has forgiven us all of the things we've done. And I remember that being a general truth. But one day in a, in a time of worship, we were singing a song called I'm Forgiven, oldie and old classic. But something happened where I was ambushed by that word. And I realized that I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. And I'd known it all my life, but suddenly it went from general to personal. And it felt like I was plunged into it. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm British, I'm reserved, but not that morning. I was jumping all over the rim. I was shouting. I said to my friends, I remember going up to them afterwards, and they would go, what's going on? I said to them, I'm forgiven. <laughs> and they go, yeah, no, 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 you don't understand, I'm forgiven. 
Yes, no, again, we know. No, no, you don't know. I've been ambushed. And it felt like I was raised to a different height through that revelation of being plunged into the truth of I'm forgiven, that his love for me was so deep, it passed anything that I'd done, past, present, and future. That's the depth of his love, that then I was living at a height of his love, and I'll never go back down that hill. I'm forgiven. I remember recently being plunged again into the Father's love for me and not not my performance. I'm a recovering performance alcoholic. I was raised in a performative culture and I'm constantly saying, Lord, take me out of this performance mindset. And recently something happened. I've discovered something about my past and my uh, background and it plunged me again into insecurity and who I was and realized that God I'd allowed my roots and my establishment to be on a certain narrative of my history. And that had gone, and I felt shaky, and I felt insecure. And it was an opportunity, I remember just grieving that loss, and like, why am I so upset by this? And in my, I remember still, I remember, I think I said it a few weeks ago, I was outside Blue Bottle and Abbott Kinney in that, on those little tables, having a coffee, journaling. I was going, why am I feeling so insecure? Why am I feeling so untethered? And all of a sudden, I felt, literally felt the Holy Spirit just like tingle down and go, but you are loved more than you could ever have been loved on that faulty foundation. Don't you realize you don't need that to be secure and loved in who you are. And I remember being in a blue bottle, tears running down my cheeks, trying not to look uncool in the coolest street in LA. <laughs> You're saying to me right now, gay, yeah, you never look cool. Don't worry about it, but. <laughs> Is the love of God in your bones? Is what he's done for you, living and breathing like a heartbeat behind everything you do? Does it overflow out of you and therefore this is what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna sacrifice, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna commit even when it's hard, I'm gonna endure no matter what, I'm gonna praise, I'm not gonna let the rocks cry out because I'm gonna praise for what he's done because his love is in my bones. And for me, I need to pray that again and again, Holy Spirit, come and plunge me back into the Father's love. That's what we're going to do now. Because there's no recipe for it, there's no equation for it, there's no mechanic, do this and you'll be plunged. It's simple this, hunger. I'd love the worship team to come back up. It's simply hunger and rehearse what he's done for you. And hunger and rehearse what he's done for you. Hunger and discover what he's done for you. Read what he's done for you. Study what he's done for you. And but hunger all the time in a posture of kneeling. But don't let this become just head knowledge. Plunge my heart into it. That's why Jesus says when you gather, this is the tradition that you always need to do together as a family. And that is communion. Because you are gathering round symbolically, ritually. It's performative truth that you are gathering around what God has done for you. This is love. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.